Happy Labor Day. The virus isn't taking the day off. The lead starts right now. Welcome to the new normal. Packed stadiums, packed airports, packed ICUs. Our three shots are best hope for getting out of this mess. Then keeping a low profile after his awful August, President Biden spends a relatively quiet Labor Day close to home. Will his September be any better? And they're nearly as tall as moon rockets. Have been around since before the Roman Empire. But can California's giant sequoias withstand climate change, drought, and wildfires? Welcome to a special edition of The Lead. I'm Erica Hill in for Jake Tapper. We start today with our health lead and new concerns on this Labor Day that the long holiday weekend could worsen the coronavirus surge in the U.S. Despite travel warnings from the CDC, millions hit the roads, rails, and skies for a getaway. College football is back with tens of thousands of mostly maskless fans packed into stadiums. And some of the last districts to return to school are back tomorrow for in-person learning, including many in the Northeast. As CNN's Nick Watt reports, top health officials worry this could put even more strain on hospitals, which are already running out of ICU beds in parts of the country. Good morning. Summer is over. This week in the Northeast, many schools start back, but ominous signs from the South. Kentucky schools opened already, and already one in five districts have closed at some point due to case counts, quarantines, or just lack of staff. We have a record number of Kentuckians in the hospital battling COVID, in the ICU battling for their lives. And they're overwhelmingly unvaccinated. South Carolina has among the lowest vaccination rates in the country and the highest infection rate. We'll have another uptick with um, the universities opening up. We will have a further uptick with the schools um, not having masks on. And we'll have Labor Day travel on top of this. So, yes, there will be a further uptick. Meantime, more data that vaccine booster shots are now necessary due to the Delta variant. The data from the Israeli studies are that there's a rather substantial diminution in protection against infection and an unquestionable diminution in the protection against hospitalization. With a booster, that protection bounced back and then some. The plan was to start third shots here in two weeks, but might only be Pfizer that rolls out then. Moderna's delayed by a data review. We've got people that are well beyond six months, that are 60 and older, that need the booster shot. And we can't give it to them because we're being held up by, you know, the nation and, and on the federal level right now. More evidence boosters are needed? A beginning and end of summer comparison. Four times the number of people in the hospital with COVID-19 now. Average new daily cases up over 800%. Back then, we were losing an average of 594 lives a day. Now, 1,561. The difference? Fewer mitigation measures and Delta. We need to rev up our game around getting unvaccinated persons vaccinated. Now, Israel's medical chief has been asked to address FDA advisors at their meeting next week and will present some more data on the boosters. Now, I'm not saying we're getting ahead of ourselves with all this booster talk, but listen to this. Still, more than a quarter of eligible Americans have not yet had even their first vaccine shot. Erica. 
Some important perspective. Nick Watt, thank you, as always. Uh, The CDC urging unvaccinated Americans not to travel for the three-day holiday weekend. CNN's Pete Muntean is live at Washington Reagan National Airport. So, uh, Pete, uh, what are we seeing in terms of numbers? Does it seem like many people listened to those warnings from the CDC? Well, Erica, a lot of people are still traveling, even in spite of that CDC warning. But what's so interesting here is that these numbers are not as high as the commercial airlines had hoped. The TSA numbers from this holiday weekend show they're about 85% of what they were back in 2019 before the pandemic. And it could be a while before we see numbers this strong again. Airlines are now saying that bookings are going down, cancellations are going up, and they're all blaming it on the rise of the Delta variant. Really a sudden end to the summer travel surge that we have been seeing. I asked United Airlines CEO Scott Kirby about this. He paints up a bit of a rosy picture. He says, that as vaccinations go up, these numbers should normalize a little bit. But remember, there's still a lot of uncertainty ahead when it comes to travel. More travel restrictions going into place. Hawaii even went as far as saying people should not travel to the state right now. Now, travel experts do caution to us that this is typically the time that travel numbers begin to slump off a little bit. But they say that there's no doubt that the Delta variant is having an impact here. The TSA has even gone as far as saying today's air travel numbers will not set a pandemic era air travel record, which is so interesting because it's typically the last day of a holiday weekend that is the biggest. Erica? Hmm. Interesting. Pete Montine, appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, Joining me now to discuss William Hazeltine, chair and president of Access Health International, a former professor at Harvard Medical School. So, uh, you know, Professor Hazeltine, when you combine that Labor Day travel We see these big crowds returning to college football. Yes, they're outside, but it feels pretty close together. More schools going back to in-person learning this week. Are you concerned we could see another surge? I'm pretty sure we will. Uh, All the indications are this virus is very transmissible, that it's uh, much more than it was this time last year. We've seen plenty of surges uh, last year from the same kind of uh, behavior. We think that people are relaxing. I'm happy to see that people are getting the message a little bit, especially for travel, but uh, I'm pretty sure there's going to be another surge. Yes. Uh, I mean, look, it's important to to be blunt here, but it does. um, It's tough, I think, for a lot of people to hear that, especially after, you know, the last major American holiday of the summer, 4th of July. President Biden declared, quote, we're closer than ever to declaring our independence from a deadly virus. Now we're at Labor Day, as Nick laid out for us. We're averaging 1,500 COVID deaths reported every single day. Hospital ICUs in a number of areas nearing capacity or already there. What happened over the summer? What happened is a Delta variant. Actually, two things happened. This pandemic is driven by behavior and the virus. And both behavior got looser. More people felt they were in the clear. Those people who never were taking precautions didn't add precautions, and those people who were relaxed. And there's a much worse virus out there, much more transmissible. You know, we have underestimated COVID from the very beginning. The last administration underestimated it, and I'm sad to say this administration has underestimated it too. We were all hopeful when we saw those rapid declines at the beginning of the summer that it was over, but it's clearly not over. We're back up to where we were, very close to the the peak of our our worst times, and worst times look like they're to come before they get better. And we've got to take this seriously. This virus is going to come back again and again. That's my view as a virologist. That's my view from studying coronaviruses. And I think we have to think about it like flu. 
Maybe we have to get a vaccine every year, or maybe we have to get it twice a year. But whatever it is, the vaccines are going to be a big help. But they won't help if you don't follow sensible precautions when the virus is around. Yeah, and they don't help if you don't get them in the first place, as we know. When we look at, you're talking about, we may need a shot every year. Maybe we may need two. You know, so much talk about the booster shot, especially from the administration. The language is changing, right, to now that nearly every American could need a third shot. This guidance has changed so quickly. That's been frustrating for a number of people. And in many ways, I think, just highlights the consistent issue with messaging. It's uh, partly messaging, but it's partly new knowledge, too. And I think the one thing that you learn in medicine when you're looking at a new problem is not to overpromise, not to underestimate disease. You know, how many of us had diseases that we've underestimated how serious this is? COVID is a really serious disease and the virus is very, very tricky. It's honed its teeth for millions of years in infecting animals that have already been infected so it knows how to come back. And those are really difficult problems to solve. Doesn't mean it's insoluble. You know, people don't like to hear about it, but when you look at some parts of the world where there's 1.4 billion people in the nation and almost nobody has died, maybe 24 people in the last year and a half, humans can control this. We can do it, but we have to do it with solidarity. We have to do it with community. We have to do it with a willingness to be willing to sacrifice, to protect others, because they will sacrifice to protect us. That's what we need to do. Medicine plus caring for ourselves and other people is what we need. Caring can go a long, long way. You know, as we look at what could be coming in terms of guidance for a third shot or a second shot, depending on if you had the J&J vaccine. Um, There was that original September 20th goal. Pfizer looks like it will have the FDA approval for an additional shot before Moderna. Could people who got Moderna or Johnson & Johnson get a Pfizer booster shot? Absolutely. You know, one thing that is very good news is that the government has prepared for a third shot, whether or not the FDA has approved it. They want to be in a position so that it's there when the green light goes on. And now we are there uh, with a Pfizer, and I think we'll soon be there within the month uh, for Moderna, a month to two months with Moderna. So we have enough vaccines to do the booster. You know, for those who are sports fans, think of this as a three-pointer. It's something you really can do. It's the best thing you can do. We know that the level of protection is much better with a third shot. And that's not unusual for vaccines. Many, many vaccines require third shots, and the third shot of a, of a, of a, of a trio takes place six months after the last, uh, last uh, shot. So this is quite normal. And it's really something we need to think about because it really makes a big difference in your level of protection. And when you measure it for a level of hospitalization and disease, it makes a big difference. So if you add two, get a third. If you haven't had your first, Start catching up as soon as you can. Third time's a charm. William Hazeltine, always appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you, Erica. Uh, new information about Americans still stuck in Afghanistan, including how the United States helped to evacuate some citizens by land. Then a three-month-old baby, a mother and grandmother, among the four victims killed by a gunman who police say had no connection to them. The latest on that investigation ahead.
Topping our world lead, the Taliban sharing this image today of their flag flying high over the governor's office in the last remaining province. There it is, resisting a takeover. The anti-Taliban fighters, however, denying they've lost. In fact, they say they're still fighting and are appealing to the rest of the country to join them in a, quote, general uprising. Joining me now from Islamabad, Pakistan, is CNN's Nick Robertson and CNN's Katie Bo Williams, live from Washington. So, Nick, first to you, what more are you learning about the fight in Panjshir province and what could come next? Well, the Taliban have been seen to have rounded up a lot of the fighters from the Panjshir Valley. But what we're hearing from the National Resistance Front, which are the fighters from that valley, they say that, look, you know, while the Panjshir Valley is one long valley with high mountain peaks, it's always been a sort of a place of, that's been strategically defended very strongly. That seems to have crumbled. So what the Resistance Front is now saying is, look, there are a lot of offshoot valleys. The mountains are very high. I've spent time there. It is. It is pretty austere and steep terrain. And they say they've still got fighters in some of those other side valleys. In fact, uh, you know, one of their supporters has just tweeted out in the last few minutes they're fighting on four fronts. The reality is they've been pressed, they've been pressed hard, they've lost ground. And this appeal for a national resistance for other leaders to rise up um, is probably not going to garner a lot of support in the short term, in the longer term it might, because there's a lot of, uh, you know, former warlords, their sons as well, fighters, people who are very accomplished at fighting, who could rally to that cause at, at a later time. But for right now, they really seem on the back foot and the Taliban have the upper hand, at least at the bottom of the valleys uh, mm -hmm. and in the in the sort of main government district center, if you will. Uh, Katie Bo, as we look at, you know, what's happening on the ground in terms of Americans who are still in Afghanistan, the White House defending its evacuation efforts. This after Republican Congressman Mike McCall claimed that the Taliban were actually holding Americans and Afghan allies hostage there. What more do we know about that situation? Yeah, so what we know right now is that there are a number of chartered airplanes that are on the ground at an airport in a northern city in Afghanistan called Mazari Sharif, and the Taliban are, are not allowing those planes to leave. Now, these are planes that were supposed to be bringing out um, some number of U.S. citizens, U.S. visa holders, allies of the United States, Afghans who had worked with the United States over the last 20 years of conflict, in addition to some vulnerable populations like women and girls, for, for example. Um, now, we do know that there are are negotiations underway to try to get the Taliban to agree to allow these planes to leave. But as to whether or not this is a hostage situation, as, as Congressman McCall has suggested, that has been disputed by some of the, the private groups that are that are organizing some of these flights. They say, you know, people can leave the airport. They just can't get on an airplane and leave Afghanistan and, and go to Qatar, as was originally the plan. But, you know, look, the, the, the bottom line here, Erica, is that it is it is unbelievably difficult for the United States to really have a great idea of of what is going on on the ground in Maza right now, much less sort of manage the situation, because the fact of the matter is, is the United States government doesn't have an official presence there. There are no diplomats there. There are no service members. The United States doesn't control the airspace. So this is tricky. Yeah, it, it certainly is. Meantime, uh, in terms of who the United States would even be talking to, the Taliban is expected, as we know, Nick, to debut their new government in a few days. So A, what can we expect? And, and B, why has it taken so long to put that government out there? 
Well, we know that their current supreme leader, their, what they call their commander of the faithful, Hebatollah Akhantada, is going to remain the sort of head of state or become the head of state, if you will. Um, what happens below that isn't clear. Pakistani sources, and they may have insights because their head of intelligence was in Kabul talking to the Taliban over the weekend, said that there are disputes between some of the sort of stronger military commanders over who could be the defense minister. Um, but what we're hearing is don't expect any women to be in senior positions. And this inclusive government that the Taliban talked about, having former uh, Afghan government members in there, perhaps senior members, um, you know, no one at the moment is telling us and giving us an indication that any former senior political figure is going to get a meaningful position in the, in, the, in the Taliban government. The latest coming from the Taliban is that this government should come soon, but it could be what they're dis describing as a sort of, uh, you know, a temporary uh, uh, government, uh, you know, where they maybe change some positions in the near future. Really, what they mean by that isn't clear. I, I think one of my biggest takeaways at the moment is that the Taliban sources that in the past have been quite loquacious and have given us some useful insights that have been reasonably accurate, They've all gone quiet at the moment. This really is uh, being held close by the Taliban and it's taking longer. And that's giving countries like Pakistan and their intelligence services a degree of concern. Yeah, understandably. Nick Robertson, Katie Bo Williams, appreciate it. Thank you both. Uh, no rest for the White House on this holiday as President Biden faces multiple challenges, including problems within his own party. That's next. Our politics lead President Biden is closing out the summer with his worst job approval numbers yet after a chaotic exit from Afghanistan, a slowdown in the economic recovery and a rise in COVID deaths and cases. Now, as seen as Caitlin Collins reports, the White House is going all in on Biden's top domestic priorities at all costs. In moments, President Biden will return to Washington, where a series of health, economic and legislative challenges are facing him. So let's keep going. Let's stick together. Let's re remember who we are. The U.S. military has left Afghanistan, but the White House is still trying to get dozens of Americans out of the country. We believe it's around 100. We're in touch with uh, all of them. On top of that, the president is confronting a dramatic new rise in COVID-19 infections. He'll give a major speech Wednesday as several states are running out of ICU beds. The thing to do right now is to pull out all the stops on everything we can do to prevent new infections. You're going to be in a situation where you're going to have to make some very tough choices. The surge is creating new uncertainty and causing Biden's poll numbers to drop. 52% of people now approve of the way he's handling the pandemic, down 10% from 62% in June. The president says the Delta variant is to blame for the latest anemic jobs report. I know people were looking and I was hoping for a higher number. That comes as federal funds that helped ease the shock of the pandemic ended for more than 7 million Americans today. Tomorrow, the president will travel to storm-ravaged New York and New Jersey to survey damage and make the case for serious action on climate change. Yet another reminder that these extreme storms and the climate crisis, crisis are here. This, as Senator Joe Manchin, a fellow Democrat, is threatening to upend the president's legislative agenda calling for a, quote, strategic pause on his colleagues' costly social policy program.
Biden's chief of staff, Ron Klain, says he'll confident they'll get Manchin's critical vote in the end. If I had a nickel for every time someone's told me this package has been dead, I would be a very, very rich person. <laughs> and Erica, we should note that on top of that uh, and those Americans that are losing those expanded jobless benefits there, there is another three million who are losing the $300 weekly supplement as well. Ron Klain, in that interview where he was saying uh, that he would be a very rich person if he had a nickel for every time someone said that the president's legislative agenda was dead, also said in that interview that he thinks that the jobs are out there for those people who need them and that the states have the resources to move people from unemployment to employment. Caitlin Collins with the latest for us. Caitlin, thank you. Uh, let's discuss further. Uh, joining us now, Hillary Rosen and Scott Jennings. So, Hillary, these two new polls which came out over the last few days show President Biden's approval rating dipping significantly. Uh, you see it down to 44 percent in this new ABC Washington Post poll, 43 percent in an NPR PBS poll. How concerning are those numbers for Democrats heading into 2022? I think that they're um, thinking about 2022 at this stage is kind of premature. I think, you know, we're going to see a renewed effort coming, you know, this month back to the Senate, back to the House to actually pass the legislation that Joe Biden promised the American people he was going to pass. And I think that as long as he is doing the job, he said, get the pandemic under control, get people vaccinated, get the economy moving again. I think people are going to reward that at the polls. And I think um, that's what they're they're focused on is getting this stuff done and and hoping that the election then takes care of itself. So so as we look forward to that election, uh, it was interesting uh, what we heard from Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger over the weekend, urging his party to refrain from pushing lies and conspiracies. Take a listen. All I can say right now is my party has to embrace truth. We have to have a full reckoning of what happened on January 6th, and we have to turn away from conspiracy. I think if we're going to be in charge and pushing conspiracy and pushing division and pushing lies, then the Republican Party should not have the majority. Scott, do you agree? Uh, should the majority in the House, should Republicans, if they were to gain it, should they not there? If they keep embracing the big lie, how damaging is that moving forward? Well, I think the January 6th matter is actually far more impactful for 2024 than, than 2022. I think the midterms already favor Republicans. Historically, they would favor Republicans anyway. Uh, you see the American people turning against Biden for a number of reasons. If the economic indicators continue, if people remember the shame of his Afghanistan decision, if we continue to have inflation, uh, we continue to, to find out that Joe Biden isn't the person that he told us that he was during the campaign. I think the, the wave could be building even greater than history uh, might otherwise indicate. The January 6th matter to me is far more impactful for the next presidential election. Uh, but I think for the midterms, frankly, Republicans are in a good spot. And with all due respect to Adam, who I respect very much and like very much, uh, I think it would be an epic disaster <laughs> to advocate for Democrats remaining in the majority. Uh, when you see the uh, extreme policies being pushed by Biden and his party. Hillary, I'm, I'm going to guess, <laughs> knowing you too well, um, you don't agree with that, specifically the way that Scott has, has set up where things stand right now uh, for President Biden. What's your take on what we heard from Congressman Kinziger? You know, he did say in that interview beforehand that he was a Republican and wanted them to win the majority. But but I, I think the point he is making is one that is important and it is relevant to the midterms, even though Scott doesn't want to talk about it, which is 
why should people vote for a congressman who lies? Why should they want a, a majority leader and a speaker who lies to them every day in fealty to Donald Trump about who won an election, you know, almost now a year ago? And so I think there is something to that. But I think most importantly, Democrats are delivering. Joe Biden is going to be delivering what people want. These provisions are popular. You know, moms are staying home because they don't have affordable child care. People are worried that these storms are never ending unless there's some uh, aggressive action on climate change. There is support to move infrastructure. So I think if Democrats still deliver what they said that they were going to deliver in the last election, that's what the midterms are going to matter most about. You know, there's a lot of focus, understandably, on the issue of abortion, which is coming front and center again, based on what we saw with this new law out of Texas. Hillary, today, Attorney General Merrick Garland promised to protect abortion clinics in Texas by enforcing a federal law that prohibits people from blocking entryways to the clinic or making threats against patients. Um, but really, is that enough? I mean, how much of a difference do you think that is going to make? No, it's not enough. And I don't think that he or the president thinks it's enough. I mean, as a you know, it is frightening to think that women in Texas are going to have this kind of government control over their bodies where vigilantes, you know, can come and, and, and enforce a law, you know, for money. So I think that the attorney general is doing everything they can. There is a law on the books that says that you cannot threaten anyone uh, going to an abortion clinic and they're going to try and use that. But really... What we need is a is a Supreme Court decision in Roe v. Wade to be codified into law. A huge percentage of the American people do not want this law changed. Members went to the Supreme Court and got confirmed, like Justice Kavanaugh, promising in uh, senators that he was not going to change this law. There is a real threat to to women's independence here and and women's health care, and I think that the Republicans are going to rue the day that they support this Texas law and that they've supported such a dramatic shift in um, women's rights. Scott, there is concern among some conservatives that this could really backfire on Republicans and could harm them at the ballot box. How concerned are you, specifically when it comes to, for example, suburban women? Uh, I'm not too concerned. I mean, look, the, the confines of most elections are broadly fought on these lines. Republican is the pro-life party. Democrats, the pro-abortion, uh, and we'll do just about anything to defend abortions. And Republicans, in most cases, will do just about anything to push pro-life jurists and pro-life policies. I don't really think that has changed here. Now, if we have a Roe versus Wade uh, decision next year in the run-up to the midterm, I, I think that would be the time to relook at the political calculus. But at the end of the day, I think you got to ask yourself, um, what are people really going to be voting on next year? I think it's going to be on the economy, the state of the country. Does Joe Biden... Uh, have the judgment, competence, and honesty that he promised us during the presidential campaign. I think that's why his approval ratings are down right now. So I'm dubious that abortion is going to be the number one issue in the election when, you know, people are going to the grocery store and their bills are skyrocketing and skyrocketing every month with no end in sight. We will be watching for all of it. Hillary Rose and Scott Jennings, thank you both. Thank you. With time running out in California's recall election, Governor Gavin Newsom is turning to a key group to help him keep his job.
With the California recall election now just one week from tomorrow, Democrats from every wing of the party are pulling out all the stops to ensure Governor Gavin Newsom keeps his job. As Zenith Kyung Law reports, this holiday weekend, Newsom himself is angling for support from union workers to get the votes he so desperately needs. Let's vote no, no, hell no, 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 hell no, 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 hell no. On a sweltering Labor Day weekend, California Governor Gavin Newsom rallied the foot soldiers who'd fought for him before, leaning on organized labor to keep him on the job. We embrace unions. We embrace social justice, racial justice, economic justice. All of those things are at risk if we don't turn out the vote on September 14th. That's the last day to vote in the Republican-backed recall of the Democratic governor. The Los Angeles Federation of Unions says it spent $2 million to protect Newsom, calling half a million voters. How are you Union member Hugo Soto-Martinez, son of immigrants, has helped knock on 60,000 doors in Los Angeles, aiming to hit 100,000 before voting ends. Organized labor has been key in making sure that this becomes a deep blue state, so the values of the state reflect the union values, and those are workers, those are immigrants, those are people who work for a paycheck in this country. National Democrats boosting Governor Newsom this holiday weekend have called the recall an attack on unions. From Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren. SEIU, all the unions, we're in the house. To Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar. The Newsom campaign says unions have contributed $14 million to fight his recall. A worthy investment, believes union member Siobhan Moore-Cage. I am for Gavin Newsom. And, and so whatever I have to do to, to keep him in office, to keep the people empowered, I'm going to do that. Larry Elder doesn't represent everybody. He doesn't represent all colors and all nationalities. He may say he does, but his action speaks louder than words. Republican challenger and conservative radio host Larry Elder has slammed the union money backing the governor, especially the California Teachers Association. The number one obstacle to school choice is a teacher's union. What's the number one funder of my opponent? Teachers union. It's a criticism the governor brushes off, especially with just over a week to go before the election. It's about energy. It's about boots on the ground, door knocking. It's about text messaging. It's really about turnout. Labor knows how to turn out. Uh, you saw Senators Warren and Klobuchar there nodding at organized labor with Governor Newsom. Vice President Kamala Harris also hit a similar note in a tweet just a short time ago. She tweeted, the American people know that when unions win, families win. Communities win, democracy wins. When unions win, America wins. She will also be in California later in the, the middle of this week, Erica, rallying beside the governor. Erica? Kyung Lao with the latest for us uh, with the countdown officially on. Kyung, thank you. Uh, some of the oldest living things on the planet outlived the Roman Empire, but they may not be able to survive this new threat. That's next.
International lead more than half a million people still without power in Louisiana just over a week after Hurricane Ida made landfall. Power company officials say Ida did more damage to the distribution system in New Orleans than Hurricanes Katrina, Delta and Zeta combined. And in Mamaroneck, New York, one of several places hit hard by Ida's remnants, hundreds of people remain displaced. In our Earth Matters series, California firefighters making significant progress against the Caldor Fire near Lake Tahoe. As CNN's Stephanie Elam reports, wildfires, drought and climate change are also threatening California's most unique national beauties. From their size, General Sherman is 275 feet tall. Holy cow. To their longevity. You know, before ancient Rome, before Christ, I mean, these trees were, were mature. Much about giant sequoia trees is on a grand scale. With that distinctive red-brown bark covering their thick trunks, sequoia trees can only be found in California's Sierra Nevada mountains. This is a resilient tree. They are tough. Almost nothing can kill them. But climate change is changing that, shrinking the giant sequoia's footprint. A giant sequoia that was first weakened by drought was then subject to impacts by the bark beetle, which then further weakened the tree and potentially made it more susceptible to mortality from fire. The stag tree is said to be the fifth largest tree in the entire world. It's lived more than 3,000 years. And yet we're seeing that wildfire is threatening these giant sequoias more than ever before. The Castle Fire was a wake-up call, an estimated 7,500 to 10,600 trees were destroyed in that one fire alone. Started by lightning in August 2020, the Castle Fire was part of the Sequoia Complex that burned more than 174,000 acres, scorching several Sequoia groves. It was devastating, heartbreaking. Everything had been incinerated. It was a field of the world's largest burned up toothpicks. After decades of suppressing forest fire, other trees and brush have grown rampantly around the sequoias. The fires that used to burn every five to 10 years in the Sierra would just keep down the competition and reduce the fuel naturally. On land owned by the Save the Redwoods League, we hiked out to see just how deadly the Castle Fire was here. For us to see 10 to 14 percent of the total of giant sequoias alive uh, killed in one year in one fire is, there's nothing to compare that to. Yet fire, in and of itself, is not the enemy of the giant sequoia. Their cones open up, their seeds start to germinate after a fire. So near those lost giants, where the fire wasn't too intense, small shoots of hope take root. What I see is a lot of these little baby giant sequoias that have sprouted up since the fire happened. Without an urgent response to the climate crisis and increased forest maintenance, experts worry more of the once seemingly impervious sequoias will be lost. The biggest worry for me is we have two fires burning right now that are threatening groves that we have not been able to treat. The risk is still there. Stephanie Elam, CNN, in the Sierra Nevada mountains. Up next, the girlfriend of an accused killer revealing new details about his state of mind just days before police say he shot and killed a three-month-old baby.
International lead, a three-month-old baby, mother, grandmother, and another man all dead after what police are calling a rampage. That mass shooting took place Sunday morning outside of Lakeland, Florida, in between Tampa and Orlando. As CNN's Randy Kay reports, the suspected gunman is a former Marine sharpshooter whose girlfriend revealed some disturbing details to police. He's evil in the flesh. He was a rabid animal. Polk County Sheriff Grady Judd is talking about this man, 33-year-old Brian Riley, an ex-Marine who is now charged with killing four people in a horrific pre-dawn shooting. It was just, it's continuous, pop, 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 pop. It happened about 4.30 in the morning Sunday at this house in Lakeland, Florida. In the main house, we discovered a man, a woman, and an infant in the mother's arms all shot to death. Authorities say the baby boy was just three months old. Also dead, the baby's 62-year-old grandmother, who was hiding in her closet in another house on the property. The family dog also shot and killed. When deputies arrived, there was a shootout. Windows and doors were left riddled with bullet holes. He was a coward. Investigators say the suspect was wearing body armor, but surrendered after he was shot. That's when police went inside and discovered the bloody scene along with an 11-year-old girl who had been shot multiple times but is expected to recover. The sheriff says there does not appear to be any connection between the shooter and his victims. He says the suspect told them he was a survivalist and high on meth, and this terrifying detail. He just explained that they begged for their life and that he shot and killed them anyway. The suspect served in Iraq and Afghanistan and was a designated sharpshooter. His girlfriend told investigators the suspect recently started to believe he was communicating with God. She said he had PTSD. I've seen him depressed. And he said, you know, God spoke to him, and now he can talk directly to God. And she said, I'd never seen that kind of behavior. Even more bizarre, investigators say that the suspect actually came here Saturday night, hours before the shooting. He came across a couple of people on the front lawn. He told them that here, he was here to see a woman named Amber, a daughter who he was told by God was going to take her life. The people told him, there's nobody here by that name. You should go away. We're going to call the police. Apparently, he got so angry, he returned nine hours later and killed them and others inside, Erica. Oh, what a horrific story. Randy, thank you. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. I'm Erica Hill in for Jake Tapper on this special edition of The Lead. Our coverage continues right now. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.